Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Raising Primates podcast. This is your host, Megan. Today on this show, I have Alma Gottlieb, who is a cultural anthropologist. Uh, She's also a researcher, author, and uh, professor at the University of Illinois. And her specialties and areas of interest include migration, religion and ritual, the family and child rearing, and gender and sexuality. Her major research was done in West Africa with the Bang people, B-E-N-G, so we're going to get into that a little bit. And I also wanted to bring Alma on because she co-edited a book titled A World of Babies, Imagined Childcare Guides for Seven Societies. So this is a book that was kind of uh, like an imagined parenting manuals based on actual ethnographies of, of how seven different societies operate in terms of child rearing around the world. It's a really great book, and I will, of course, have a link to that in the show notes. And so I wanted to bring Alma on to kind of talk about just how weird we are in our Western world, right? Western educated, industrial rich democratic societies. How different are we from cultures that don't fall under this weird label? And I also wanted to kind of know like, are there any universals? in parenting ideals or parenting values or practices around the world and what are those if there are any. Another reason I wanted to chat with Alma was because I found an essay of hers in a book titled Different Faces of Attachment which was a collection of essays basically by a bunch of anthropologists who were really challenging the western ideal of attachment theory that's kind of taken for granted right in our certainly in America And um, these anthropologists were saying, well, hold on, this is, you know, making a lot of assumptions about how families are created and and run kind of in the rest of the world. You know, the nuclear family is not the standard in most of the world. And so it's a really fascinating book. I'll include yet another link to that one as well so you guys can look at that. And Alma gets into talking about what her essay was about and and why anthropologists were skeptical of kind of the supposed authority of attachment theory. So as you know, since I kind of walked away from attachment parenting, I'm very interested in that topic. So we get into a lot of good stuff. I really, really enjoyed chatting with Alma. Please check out uh, the links in the show notes for her books. And um, she also mentions the Facebook page for A World of Babies, where she will post about anything babies from around the world. So I'm sure you guys will be interested in that. All right. So again, just a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast, please check me out on patreon.com slash raising primates. That's how I earn funds to keep the podcast going. It costs me um, a monthly fee to, of course, edit, upload, and host all of this stuff. So if you wouldn't mind checking out my Patreon page for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support and you can cancel anytime. And thank you so much to my current Patreons. You guys are keeping this show going. So I really appreciate that. And I apologize for how sporadic my episodes have been recently. Um, But I am pregnant, which I kind of alluded to in my last episode. So I haven't been feeling all that great and I'm getting these out when I can. So thank you for bearing with me. Hopefully they'll be a bit more regular once I hit the second trimester. (laughs) All right, enjoy the show and let me know as always what you're thinking by leaving us a review on iTunes or visiting our website, RaisingPrimates.com. All right, here is Alma Gottlieb. So welcome to the podcast, Alma. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I'd love to start by hearing a little bit about just how you became interested in anthropology and particularly um, interested in studying how children are raised in various cultures. Sure. Um, You know, I grew up and came of age in the 60s when everyone in my generation, or a lot anyway, were looking for ways to make a better world. Uh, We noticed there was a lot wrong with the world. Um, From the U.S. perspective, our country was embroiled uh, in a kind of a quasi-colonialist war in Vietnam. Uh, Racism and sexism uh, were rampant. And I started looking around um, at ways that other 
people in other parts of the world arrange their lives to see if maybe there were some models that America could follow. So it was kind of a mix of pragmatism and idealism. <laughs> um, but uh, when I first got interested in the study of anthropology, I really had no interest in studying children. I didn't even realize that one could study children as an anthropologist. All of my training was about asking questions of adults and um, listening to what they had to say. And it was only, honestly, after be, uh, becoming a mother, or I should say really becoming pregnant <laughs> for the first time, um, that I started thinking, hmm, there might be something um, to this pregnancy child-rearing thing that anthropologists um, might be able to say something about. Definitely, yeah. I didn't think about any of this before I became a mom either. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I think pretty much any mom knows it's a life-changing event. Mm -hmm. And if you're already in the business of studying how people around the world live their lives, when you become a mom, you start thinking, well, how, how do other moms do it? Mm -hmm. um, and how do other kids live their lives? And um, there's so much in the popular culture that seems to claim that parenting and childhood are universal, but anthropologists, of course, are always skeptical about any universal claims. Um, so it was easy to start imagining, hmm, um, what, what could we say about this whole project as an anthropologist? Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's just so important to, to get really objective about things because when you're in it yourself, of course, as a new mom, new parent, everything just, you know, you're getting advice from every corner of your world, from relatives and family and mm -hmm. friends. And it's really hard to, to imagine other ways of doing things, you know, because we are so ingrained in our own culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. for sure. I mean, every advice column about parenting basically starts out with the assumption that there is one right answer, <laughs> right. <laughs> whatever it is. And that objectively doesn't work because there are many, many right answers around the world. Um, that's something that anthropologists specialize in is um, figuring out all the different ways that people um, tackle the same problem. So the challenges are the same. How do you um, rear um, a young, um, uh, unformed and uh, dependent uh, child uh, to adulthood and independence? And what does that look like and what does that mean? And um, how do we even define independence? Um, certainly in the U.S., independence as a monad, as a single person making individual decisions is really a goal for many, many parents. It turns out that's actually not even a goal for many parents around the world. So even the basic values, we're all trying to raise healthy children to survive childhood. <laughs> that's, right. that's one of the few universals I can really point to beyond that things start looking a, a lot stickier and more surprising. Yeah, and that's really what I want to focus our discussion on is, is kind of putting our, you know, not only parenting practices, but even broader, our values as parents in the kind of weird cultures, as we call them, right? Western, educated, industrial, rich, democratic. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so putting, putting those into perspective and, and seeing like, well, where did these come about historically and, and how do other people do this around the world? So one of the things I wanted to start with, because it's actually how I found your work, mm. was I was reading a book called Different Faces of Attachment, which mm -hmm. you contributed to. And, you know, attachment theory is something that's very, um, you know, in Western culture, I think it's just taken for granted. It's, you know, very um, evidence-based and, and people just talk about it. Oh, yeah, secure attachment, insecure, and this is what babies need, and this is exactly the right way. Um, but I'd love to hear kind of more about some of your insights into how attachment can look different across various cultures. Yeah, and why. thanks. I yeah. love that question. Um, a, a number of us started chipping away at the authority of so-called attachment theory because it was clear to us that it was starting not from biology, but from culture, but it claimed to be starting from biology. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so the assumption behind the way most of attachment theory has been marketed um, and also how the research has um, unfolded um, by mostly psychologists is the assumption that one baby and one normally biological mother um, should have a very, very strong and unique 
and almost monopolistic kind of attachment with each other um, during the first couple of years and especially during the first year. Um, and so a whole industry really has grown up around measuring uh, the quality of that so-called required attachment between mother and infant. And the assumption is um, uh, the less attached in certain ways um, a child is to his or her mother, um, and the more insecurely so-called, these are technical terms used in the literature, um, the child is, um, the worse the child's life chances for having a happy, healthy, long, um, adult life. And that assumption is really grounded in um, one way of living a life, one way of organizing a family, and one way of organizing a community and even a society, and that is based in the nuclear family. And the idea that two parents, normatively a male and a female, should be co-raising a child together, um, and nobody else really need interfere. <laughs> And that's a very particular way of raising children that is very restricted. It's only a small minority of the world's um, humans who live like that, and only for a very recent period in human history. Mm. So for most of human history, humans have not lived like that. <laughs> uh, no humans. And only in recent history has a small number of humans lived like that. But somehow we have managed to convince ourselves that there's a biological mandate um, for living in the nuclear family when anything could be farther from the truth. So in most societies where there's something like a community, um, what sociologists or anthropologists call a face-to-face -face community where everybody knows everybody's name in this community. So this would not be New York City <laughs> or Paris <laughs> or London, but small villages with a few hundred people. Um, the notion typically is that uh, children are raised by the community. Uh, by now, I think um, the famous phrase that Hillary Clinton popularized, it takes a village to raise a child, is common. Um, but I think it's harder to really wrap our heads around what it means. So here's an extreme example from the villages I've worked in, in uh, the West African nation of Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire. Uh, the moment a baby emerges from a mother's um, womb, assuming that uh, the mother and baby appear more or less healthy, of course it's um, hard work, so they're not exactly you know, hopping up and down, <laughs> but <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> as, as long as nothing traumatic obviously happened, somebody immediately, within a couple of minutes, is sent as like a dispatcher or messenger to every household in the village, and in a large village that might be a few hundred households, um, to announce that the birth has happened. And then every one of those households is required by custom uh, to send a representative of the household to the house where the mother's just given birth, and there'll be a line forming of people uh, coming in, like a line outside a, a delivery room in a hospital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but in a large village, there might be 20, 30, 40 people lined up. Um, and as each person enters, um, they look at the mother, they congratulate her, um, they thank her, and then they say, what have you given me? And then she needs to answer, there's a very formulaic exchange, I have given you a girl, or I have given you a boy. Just a simple gendered answer. And then the person again says, thank you. And gives her typically a little coin, maybe the equivalent of five cents is a little symbolic gesture of a gift. So with that kind of entry into the world, the mother is informed that this child she has just produced is not hers. <laughs> Um, it's not hers alone. It belongs to the community. Of course, she'll have special bonds, but those bonds are going to really be shared by everybody. And everybody is taking responsibility. So it's a reciprocal relationship. And that is the exact opposite of what gets communicated to new mothers, certainly in the U.S. and other these days advanced industrialized nations. I remember when I myself um, gave birth to my first child in 1987, so that was some years ago, um, there were prominent signs up and down uh, the delivery room hallway saying only two visitors allowed uh, in the room at a time. 
and the baby may not be in the room with the visitor. <laughs> so it was actually wow. forbidden to introduce my child to anybody, let alone a community. The idea there was there are too many scary germs and the baby might die from somebody um, breathing on it. Right? Sure, so these sure. are very different values. Um, and immediately when um, women are socialized into this kind of practice in a hospital setting, of course, hospital settings vary. That was this particular hospital setting. Different hospitals have their own practices. Um, but um, the values are really communicated early on um, by the society. Either you're on your own, lady, good luck. Right, right. <laughs> um, or, you know, we're here for you. Um, anything that happens, you have dozens or hundreds of supporters. Wow. Yeah. I want to, can I contrast that with a few just personal stories too? Yeah. I mean, contrast the, the Cote d'Ivoire mm. example that you gave. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So my sister just gave birth about mm. five days ago. Oh, congratulations. I know, I know. She's beautiful. This baby came out with an inch and a half of dark black hair. <laughs> like we okay. were laughing. Wow. It was just, yeah. so I, of course, you know, having a toddler myself, I'm trying to you know, be there for her daily and, you know, what can I help you with helping her out with breastfeeding, all this stuff. And it was really funny because my mom, it was horrible timing. My mom had her high school reunion and, you know, she's all about her high school reunion. She's so funny and she plans them every five years. So she was out of town for a couple of days and she just got back last night. And I said to her this morning, I said, do you want to go over and visit Kirsten, my sister today? And she says, well, I don't know. That sounds like a lot of people. I think I should just go by myself. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I said, mom, I are you kidding it. me? Wow. I said, we can hold the baby while she sleeps. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah. Just so it's funny though, because I don't think that her view, you know, that opinion is so rare. In no, not at all. Not I, at all. I think people really think new moms want space and, you know, mm -hmm. kind of leave me alone mentality. Mm -hmm. But I just remember as a new mom, I had help for one week and then I was pretty much alone and I was so alone. I would talk to anyone out yeah. there in the world. Yep. <laughs> like, please yep. talk to me. <laughs> yep. Same here. I had to call my friends and beg them to come over and they were, they yeah. thought they were being good friends and, um, by saying, oh, are you sure? Maybe you're too tired. No, I'd love you to come over. I am tired. <laughs> Hold the baby. Hold oh. the baby while I sleep. Exactly. <laughs> Right. Yeah, so, you know, attachment looks different in a society where everybody says, thank you for giving me your child, right? The first right. moments. Um, and the idea there is uh, you want to have as many attachments as possible, not one. It's the opposite of what attachment theory claims is universal. Um, and women literally told me, if my child is too attached to me, I can't get my work done and my life may be ruined because these are full-time farmers. They work from about six in the morning to about um, eight at night. It's a very long, very grueling work day. And if you're a hundred percent responsible for an infant, um, any mother knows infants require a lot of attention and energy <laughs> and nobody has that kind of energy to take a hundred percent care of an infant um, all day long and be working as a farmer. <laughs> Um, all day long and cooking meals in these cases of these mothers for maybe five or ten people um, two or three times a day and doing all the laundry and doing all um, the dishwashing uh, and so forth it's just not humanly possible um, bang mothers say that the ideal is to really rest for three months and not even start going back to the farm to do field um, work uh, for three months. Uh, they say if you really can't get enough help um, with the baby and you need to go back, um, maybe two months, but try and really take it easy. Anything before two months, they say if you go back to work, your womb will be ruined. You'll never be able to really recover fully. And of course, if we think about, you know, six weeks of unpaid um, maternity leave in the U.S., which is our um, current standard, uh -huh. um, that's really biologically stressful. <laughs> um, and of course, the fact that it's unpaid means women, in addition to the stress of having a newborn, have financial stress, except for those who are really very privileged, um, because there's no income coming in. Right. Um, so attachment um, theory in the U.S., although I said it kind of makes sense in the U.S. where we 
um, specialize in the nuclear family. In fact, it really only makes sense if, if we have a very extended um, maternity leave policy the way many European country, uh, countries do. I just was chatting about this very subject um, with a British woman who had a 15-month-old, and she just went back to work, I think she said a month ago. So she had a full 12 months of uh, partially paid leave from a very good job. Um, and then in addition, I think another six weeks of accumulated uh, sick leave and vacation time. So she only went back when her baby was, um, I think, a, a year and... Uh, almost two months. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in a situation like that, yeah, you know, mom and baby can really attach like crazy if that's what they want to do. <laughs> uh, but if you're going back to work after six months, because you have to financially, um, or even earlier, if you can't afford to take six weeks of unpaid leave, uh, how can you possibly enact this so-called attachment theory? Um, so then the only effect is to make women feel even guiltier than they already feel. And oh, there are many exactly. things in our society that try and make women feel guilty. And it doesn't serve women or their children because we know, like you've been saying, across the world for all of time, pretty much, children have always been raised by multiple caregivers. <laughs> so, right. so there must be something that's probably evolutionarily good about that, you know, having that variety of loving um, adults in a children's life and other children. Yeah, I mean, psychologists would point out that, you know, if you, as a very young child, interact with different people, everybody has their own personality, their own speaking style, their own uh, somatic style, how they hold the baby, if they're going to bounce them or rock them. And uh, in the early years, particularly the first year, the psychologists do tell us that all new experiences create multiple new neuronal uh, connections with new neurons, literally forming new neurons um, and new connections among them in the brain. And so the more experiences a, a very young child has, especially the first year, uh, the more adaptable and flexible they'll be as an adult because they just have a lot of new neural pathways. Um, so an infant who spends 24-7 or close to it uh, with one person, whether it's the biological mother or any, anybody else, is kind of being handicapped from the neurological and cognitive development um, perspective. And that's probably something that would shock most people who have been socialized into thinking that mothers should stay home and spend all their time with their children because it's best for their children. Biologically, mm, probably not. Right. And that's what's so interesting about our culture is even though we know that many moms work outside the home, there is still this underlying idea and assumption about what's the ideal, which is mom mm -hmm. at home with the baby 24-7. And mm -hmm. so then you get to, you know, the, the working mom guilt, quote unquote, and, you know, oh, but I have quality time with my baby when I rush home to see them after work. You know, there's this like perhaps this underlying anxiety for women who can't fulfill that idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, very fascinating. So, okay. So besides the nuclear family, I feel like I could talk about that topic all day, but we'll move on because I want to cover a lot more. Um, besides, of course, the nuclear family, this ideal of, you know, mom being the sole attachment figure, what are some other very like decidedly weird parenting practices that you see that you don't see necessarily outside of um, our culture? Well, um, so when you don't assume that the mother should be the sole caretaker, all of a sudden worlds of different um, childcare um, options and strategies open up. And the new buzzword in a lot of this literature now um, is distributed childcare. It's kind of the antithesis of the attachment model. Mm -hmm. And the notion there, um, coming from these communities you know, that I'm talking about a little bit outside of um, the US and other industrialized nations, is that childcare should be shared among people. Um, and when that happens, what you see is uh, young children, babies especially, being passed around physically from person to person. So in the communities that I've done my research in, in small villages in West Africa, um, I actually did some quantitative studies to measure like how long a child spent with a given caretaker. And so the 24-7 attachment model that we've been talking about couldn't be more different. In the studies that I did, and I hired some assistants to track babies, um, not mothers, but babies, to see where they were and who they were with. Um, the modal 
time period that they spent with one person physically was five minutes. Wow. I'm going to say that again. Five minutes. That's <laughs> so crazy. Every five minutes, they were being asked <laughs> somebody else in, in two and a quarter hour periods that I was tracking them. Wow. So life is lived outdoors. Some of the reason that this can happen more easily in Africa than it could, let's say, where I live in New England is <laughs> climate related because people are outside all day. Right. Uh, it's actually more or less taboo to spend any time inside. Even if you're sick, you bring your sick bed outside. And the idea there is the community should care for you as a sick person, the way, you know, the community cares for children. Um, so a child is always being passed outside from one person to another, and there are always lots of people milling around. Um, and when they're out in the fields, um, there are a lot of people in the fields. Um, typically, a mother, when she's pregnant, will actually identify ideally one uh, young person as a babysitter, and that person will have a fair amount of responsibility for the baby. Um, and do a lot of carrying. Um, but the younger the uh, person doing the carrying, the tighter that person's gonna get. And this person can be as young as five or six years old. Mm. Um, so I have lots of photos of five and six year old, usually girls, but some boys also carrying babies, um, either on their backs, wrapped up in a, a cloth wrap, uh, like a backpack kind of thing, um, or on their hips, a little more informally. But if they're five or six, you know, after 20 minutes, they're going to get tired, right? Right, right. And they're going to pass this baby around. So in the fields, there'll be a few kids um, passing the babies back and forth. So there yeah. it might last a little longer. Um, but babies um, in most parts of the world, um, in the global south are attached to another human being, um, either a, an older child or an adult for much of the day. Um, again, a quantitative study that I did, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I think it's something like 80% of their days they're attached to somebody, either on their back or sitting in a lap. But it would be very rare for a child to be in something like a crib that has bars around it separating it from other people. The idea in the villages where I've worked in Africa is that babies need human touch um, and that should really signal emotional touch, not just physical touch. Um, the idea is babies need to be loved all the time as much as possible. And in the case of the community where I worked, um, and this is an eth one particular ethnic group called the Beng, B-E-N-G, mm -hmm. Ivory Coast, um, people say that babies actually come from another life when, when they're born in the womb. They've been put there coming from the afterlife. They were living a spiritual life in this other spiritual space. They were very happy. The Bang have a very idealized notion of what the afterlife looks like. There's no heaven and hell. Um, maybe it would be closer to something like a, a Christian idea of heaven, but there's no hell counterpart. Mm. Um, it's nice. And so they say, you know, baby, yeah, it's a nice, nice vision. <laughs> I like that much better. Than right, the other right. <laughs> We'd probably all be a little um, oh stressful. Huh? Yeah, right. right. Um, and um, so babies have a memory of this life, and they say they're living mentally back in that um, idyllic afterlife, and they miss it. And the more miserable they are here, uh, the more likely they are to return. And there's a very high infant mortality rate in this part of West Africa because of all sorts of tropical diseases and, and so forth. Um, and so everybody in the village is doing the best they can to try and love, love this uh, baby so much that it forgets about the afterlife and realizes that life here isn't so bad. <laughs> and a lot of that is carrying. So they're just, you know, carried or held most of the day by somebody. Now, of course, if a mother's going to try and carry a baby most of the day, she's going to get exhausted. Um, so it really makes sense to distribute that childcare with lots of people. Can I ask you, cause this is something that's of course applying to my life kind of right now, because mm. I, I had one of those babies that just had to be held all day long, you know, mm. those, those beautiful high needs <laughs> babies. And, um, of course, so I, I co-slept in everything with my son because it was literally the only way all of mm -hmm. us could get to sleep. Mm -hmm. And my sister, it's really funny now contrasting her, I mean, her baby's only a couple of days old, so who mm -hmm. knows what she'll be like, but, um, she, she's, she'll sleep fine on her own. And, um, you know, I kind of am trying to help my sister out with some co-sleeping, but her husband is terrified of co-sleeping. And it's like, this is totally unsafe. This is not okay. You know, and I, I would just love to get an anthropologist's point of view. Like, 
what were some of the sleeping arrangements that you saw? Like, how is that, how is sleeping dealt with? Yeah, great. Wonderful question. Um, Co-sleeping is a huge source of controversy in the U.S. right now. Um, If any of your listeners um, is interested, I would really recommend the work of a colleague of mine who's a biological anthropologist. Um, His name is James McKenna, um, and he has founded and run something called the Sleep Lab at Notre Dame University. Uh, He started it, I think, probably a good 20 years ago or 25 even. So he's had many years of research, and he has paired uh, initially mothers and infants in his lab and had them sleep and hooked up to all sorts of gizmos to track heart rate and so forth. Uh, He's recently expanded that to... um, I believe, including fathers, either separately fathers and babies, or maybe some uh, trios with father and mother and baby together and tracking those. And what he finds is that if um, the pair or the possibly the trio are co-sleeping safely, and I'm going to talk a lot about what that means safely, um, the health benefits for the child outweigh the risks and also outweigh the benefits of sleeping solo. That is, there's an extra added protection for the baby from co-sleeping. Your readers or listeners have probably heard of um, a really troubling scenario of SIDS death, sudden infant death syndrome, where a baby goes to sleep healthy and never wakes up. It's it's a a nightmare scenario for many parents. Um, what Jim McKenna finds is that in many of these cases, there are, there are different underlying reasons for these um, mysterious deaths, but in many cases, um, breathing irregularity is implicated and the heart uh, stops. And what he's finding is with safe co-sleeping, the risk of SIDS is very significantly lowered. Right. And and so when you have an infant sleeping next to a healthy, uh, non-intoxicated, that's very important, adult or between two, uh, the regular heart rhythm of the one or two adults helps to regulate the heart rhythm of the baby. So this, it's pretty incredible research. And so Jim McKenna, who is a biological anthropologist, really urges new parents to co-sleep if they can do it safely. And that's a really important um, caveat. So the safe part requires A, zero alcohol, B, zero drugs, whether recreational uh, or um, like uh, medical, anything that has a warning saying may make you sleepy. <laughs> right, right. Can't have any kind of um, brain impairment. Um, C, uh, no pillows anywhere near the child because the, the baby could suffocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, D, enough room for the three of you so nobody winds up on the floor. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was an issue for me because we tried co-sleeping <laughs> with my daughter and we had... Um, bought a full-size bed uh, long before any kids came into our lives. And boy, if I'd known about co-sleeping and um, its advantages, I would not have bought a full-size bed. <laughs> I'm breaking, right? <laughs> I, I did wind up on the floor sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, what Jim McKenna has found um, is that uh, one of the big fears among American parents who read about um, co-sleeping is that they'll roll over on the child and suffocate them. And what he finds is that as long as there are no alcohol or drugs involved and there's no brain impairment, um, and he's tracking this, right, all night with with now thousands of uh, co-sleeping pairs, um, an adult who starts to roll over on the baby will, in their sleep, uh, unconsciously roll back. <laughs> Oh, wow. But if they've drunk alcohol or on any kind of medication that provides sleepiness, that won't happen. And then it really is a bit a big, scary risk. You and know, so so your listeners who are interested really need to educate themselves. And I really urge them to look at Jim McKenna's work. He has many books out, some scientific, some written for the uh, popular um, readership. But he's really done a great deal of research on this. And all of the warnings that we see in New York City, um, uh, I think Milwaukee, several other cities have these 
big oh, public health right. campaigns, signs and buses and subways, don't co-sleep, it'll kill your child. It's really doing the science a disservice. Well, it's providing this blanket, you know, statement about something that is so nuanced that we know from, we've actually had James McKenna on the podcast, so I didn't Oh, really, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I also interviewed Helen Ball, um, who's over in the UK, I think doing similar work. But yes. It's so sad because even at the hospital, my sister gave birth that, you know, last week, it's everywhere, you know, always on their back in a crib alone. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's not reality because a lot of babies won't sleep like that for one and, you know, don't actually, it doesn't provide any health benefit as long as, like we said, your bed sharing and co-sleeping safely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, instead of for your watching. listeners who are intrigued but still nervous, they make these wonderful gizmos now. I think they're called co-sleepers um, that can attach to a bed. And so the baby is right right there. They won't get the benefit of that heart-to-heart um, regulation. But if, if you like the idea of sleeping at least nearby your baby, if not right up against them, those co-sleepers are, are an interesting um, maybe compromise. Yeah. Yeah, like a, it's like a sidecar. It comes right up. Yes. It's like a crib without one of the walls. <laughs> that's right. That's yeah. right. And so for a, a mom who's breastfeeding, it certainly makes it easier than having to get up and trudge into another room, which can really kill your sleep. Oh, my gosh. Now, I'm so curious to know, like, do you see any, did you ever in your field work see any of this same kind of fear of suffocation or fear that the mom would roll over onto the baby in any of the cultures that you lived with? I'd never heard of that. Um, Somehow they they seem to have figured it out. And from the mom's perspective, these are all breastfeeding moms um, in these villages that I'm talking about. Um, From the mom's perspective, it's a really great advantage um, because not only do they not have to get up to go to another room um, and pick up the baby and breastfeed and then not get back to sleep, Um, but if they're sleeping right next to them and they're sleeping, this is Africa, so it's hot, um, without anything on their chests, um, the baby can actually breastfeed while they're asleep. Right. And so I asked many women initially before I realized it was an idiotic question, you know, how many times did you breastfeed last night in the night? Because I was curious to see if they were exhausted from all night breastfeeding the way many mothers were who I knew, including myself, <laughs> had been. Uh-huh. Um, and they just laughed. They said, how do yeah. I know? I said, well, right. you know, I said, well, I don't know. My, my baby I suppose breastfed while I was sleeping, but I was sleeping. I really have no idea. Right? <laughs> I love so when it. we think about, you know, how exhausting it is to breastfeed all night for these mothers, unless there was something wrong with the baby, they were sick, they were crying. Okay, that happens, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but for many of them, they really just got a decent night's sleep and the babies breastfed when they needed to. And that was that. Yeah. It makes you realize like, oh, there are simpler ways to do things, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I look at all the gadgets and everything in our culture and everything on the baby list. And it's like, oh, it's kind of nice to know that, you know, humans have been doing this for a long time and there are some easier answers. Yeah. I mean, some of our um, foremothers figured things out <laughs> uh, yeah. in ways that, you know, in some cases will work for us. Now, that said, um, for women who do have full-time, let's say nine to five or something like that jobs, Um, breastfeeding becomes complicated for other reasons, because if their baby isn't anywhere near them when they're working, what happens during the day? Well, they could pump and leave lots of breast milk um, in a bottle for somebody else to feed them, uh, whether a relative or a daycare worker or anybody else. Um, But you know, pumping takes a lot of time and energy. Um, Some women don't find it comfortable. even if it is comfortable, it it takes time. And there's not a lot of time (laughs) in the first year of a baby's life. Um, So again, we have a lot of guilt that we um, dump on women for doing all sorts of things, including these days not breastfeeding. Uh, We do know biologically um, breast milk is definitely uh, better for babies. But for many women, because of uh, this absurd six-week unpaid maternity leave that we have in the U.S., Uh, breastfeeding when you're working is just not viable. Again, another reason why we can look with envy at many European and other countries that have much longer periods of maternity leave, which really does make long-term breastfeeding a much more viable scenario. 
Definitely. Yeah, it's really an atrocity. Our lack of, of, I mean, leave in general longer than six weeks, but of course paid leave as well. And that's something I think our generation really, really needs to step up and, and voice our opinion about. <laughs> right. I mean, anybody who's, who advocates bread, breastfeeding needs to be advocating right. a year-long maternity policy at the same time. Otherwise, it, it makes no sense. <laughs> but you're exactly right that, you know, we, the pendulum swings so far in the extremes that, you know, we went from basically a totally bottle feeding culture to now like, oh, well, breast is absolutely best. And, and so many women are feeling horrible if they find that they don't produce enough milk or they, you know, their milk supply dropped when they went back to work or whatever it is. And now we have women who feel horrible on the other side of the yeah. spectrum. And it's, it's just, it's a lose-lose almost for women. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. We don't need any more of that. We need more supportive systems. If women want to breastfeed, if women don't want to breastfeed, then they should absolutely have that as well. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So I want to go a little bit beyond infant practices Mm -hmm. and just see if there was anything you observed. I know you said you lived with the bang people, is that, mm-hmm. is that the same yeah. people on the Ivory Coast? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Were, was there anything about like child rearing values or ideals that you saw um, with regards to maybe older children or teenagers, like how they are just kind of seen or um, what some ideas about how they should be treated by adults? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in, in our contemporary um, world in the U.S., you know, getting into the 21st century, there's a lot of research now showing um, that adolescence and sort of pre-early adulthood is expanding. Uh, a lot of psychologists and sociologists are talking about how um, young adults these days really don't even fully grow up until the mid-20s. A lot more dependence uh, for financial and perhaps other reasons. A lot of people after graduating from college are moving back in with their parents. Um, they're not um, financially self-sufficient because of all sorts of um, economic disasters going on and so forth. Um, so the more that happens, the more contrast I see um, with what I observed in these small African villages where uh, people grow up in some ways a lot faster um, and they're certainly encouraged to take a lot more responsibility and um, contribute meaningfully to the family and community economy much earlier. Um, Little girls from the age that they can walk, so somewhere around one and a half are put to work. And the work is easy and child appropriate. And I never saw them being forced in a mean way. They seem really excited to help. Um, Mothers uh, have a very large mortar and pestle and the mortar might be about a foot and a half off the ground and the pestle might be about five feet long. And they're using that to grind a lot of heavy foods, a certain kind of um, yam, and also uh, corn, they'll ground, uh, grind into cornmeal, and pepper, uh, peanuts, they'll grind into peanut sauce, uh, or peanut butter, and so forth. And then they'll um, get somebody to make a tiny version of that mortar and pestle um, for their little girls, and they'll show their little girls how to grind, and they'll, they'll keep doing it until they get it. And by six, most little girls can be contributing very meaningfully into the family food supply. They are really helping their moms cook um, with chopping and so forth. And, um, and that continues. They're also brought to the fields every day. So there's no spatial disjunction between where the mom is working and where the baby's hanging out. So babies are going with their moms to the fields. And so they're seeing visually what their moms are doing. Um, and dads, moms and dads typically work uh, side by side. And um, around the age of around uh, two-ish, when they're really very firm walkers, then boys start going with their dads to the fields and uh, helping their dads do what they do. And girls start going with their moms to the field. So there's a bit of a gender division of labor. Uh, but by between two and three, children are really helping out in the fields. And it's one of the reasons that there's a high 
birth rate um, because uh, children are really seen as part of the labor pool. We have a lot of discussion about um, exploitation of children. We have laws that were passed um, in the late 19th, early 20th century in the U.S. and European nations um, to prevent against exploitation of children. So some of your listeners may be appalled thinking this is child abuse. Um, I would say that Child abuse comes in different flavors and styles, but when children are incorporated into a family um, economy and there's love surrounding them, um, it didn't look like abuse to me. <laughs> um, yeah. There's definitely child abuse going on in the global south, but mm. it tends to be either in factories, the kind of things that we legislated against in the U.S. and Europe a um, hundred or so years ago, um, or on very large commercial plantations. And mm. in some of the villages where I worked, um, parents felt compelled to send their children as young as 10 or 12 uh, to work on these plantations to send back money. And that really was horrendously exploitative. I personally have stopped eating all chocolate um, after investigating um, the child labor pool in Cote d'Ivoire, which is the largest uh, supplier of chocolate in the world, I believe. Oh. Um, supply something like 40% of the world's chocolate. Um, and most of these plantations have child laborers who are exploited horrendously. So I'm not trying to paint an idyllic picture of everywhere outside of the U.S. Of course, by yeah. any means. Um, and to say that anything goes with children. Definitely um, child abuse happens in many contexts. Um, but for the small villages that I'm talking about, Children are seen as productive. They're encouraged to be productive. They feel um, confident and competent and pride of the work they do. Somewhere between around 12 and 15, depending on their skill level, their interest and their muscles, they may actually be given their own uh, farm to field or, uh, sorry, field to farm, uh, usually by 16. Traditionally, most kids would have their own field to be farming independently. Um, so that looks very different from what 16-year-olds are doing, let's say, in the U.S., um, you know, studying for tests and doing nothing um, useful for the family economy. Right? I had a job at 16. No. There you go. <laughs> that I'm talking about middle class. Poor, right. Poor right. 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 It's, you know, it's, it's really interesting to think just about, of course, how different our lives are from these people in terms of how we are able to provide sustenance for our families, right? And make livings. It's, I mean, agrarian societies basically versus our industrial and, and how that plays into how children are treated and how ideals or ideas about children are kind of transmitted to them, you know, that, I mean, it's just assumed that they will be competent and confident and want to work and, um, it's really interesting to contrast that with us. We think of teenagers as lazy and they don't want to work. They don't want to do their homework or whatever. And Absolutely. And those stereotypes, teenagers being lazy and irresponsible, that would be an unimaginable luxury in these villages that I'm talking about. I mean, the society couldn't perpetuate itself if those stereotypes actually right. were enacted. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And again, so we tend to assume there's some kind of biological basis to them. How can that be if so many of the world's teenagers are um, well, actively working. <laughs> yeah, and what is going on with that whole, you know, I think, I think the message that psychologists are trying to send with that whole, oh, your brain isn't developed, I, I just don't know what that message is actually, but I don't know if it's helping anyone because I know for myself, I felt pretty, I mean, I felt ready to work and, you know, I, I have had a job since I was 16 years old and, and that was all throughout college and grad school and everything. And, and so I worry, like, what kind of messages are we sending teenagers when we say, oh, well, you're not really an adult or you're not really ready for all this work. And I don't know, it's kind of like, it would just seem... I don't know, perhaps that it's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we are more and more infantilizing our children, and I, I don't think that's doing them um, any favors developmentally. Yeah. yeah. Very interesting to think about, though. So you mentioned earlier that perhaps one thing that we all share, parents across the globe, is that you know we want to raise successful and, and healthy adults. And I wonder, are there any other specific, like, 
practices or values that you can think of that is some that are ones that are shared globally by humans everywhere? You know, anthropologists tend to get nervous when the U word universal <laughs> shows up. Yeah. One of our stocks in trade is starting sentences, but with, but what about the X, right? Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's really easy for us to come up with examples that contradict these universals. What I can say is universally, um, it seems that all parents everywhere want their children to survive childhood, um, as long as it appears that they have a decent likelihood to. Right. And I'm adding that caveat because um, before neonatal units and advanced so-called Western medical care of, for example, children born very prematurely or children born with very um, uh, catastrophic and perhaps life-threatening disabilities, uh, those children would have either died a natural death in utero or a natural death, you know, a couple of hours or days after birth, depending on what was going on medically, or in some cases they would have been killed. In the villages where I've worked, infanticide was practiced for infants born with certain disabilities that were considered to be so um, life-threatening uh, in terms of quality of life, uh, that even if the child survived uh, the first days, uh, they would have such a poor quality of life, um, being unable uh, to be a successful independent adult, um, that the community made a decision that um, it, they would be doing a disservice to those infants to terminate their lives. So that sounds kind of brutal. Right. Um, no, it does, but it's, but it's real. It's real. Um, you know, without advanced medical care, um, one, one can imagine the, that being a rational choice. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And these days, you know, we have a whole new specialty among, um, philosophers uh, who are billing themselves ethicists and a lot of neonatal doctors are consulting with ethicists and trying to figure out when does it make sense uh, to prolong the life of an infant that would naturally die by itself and when does it not? When does it make sense to recommend to the parents we should disconnect this infant from these life-saving technologies because the nature of the life this infant will grow up to lead as an adult is so compromised and so narrow and poor uh, that we're not doing that person a, f a favor. That's a hard conversation to have. It may be hard for some of your listeners to even be thinking about that and listening to me talk about it because I think in certainly America and maybe other um, advanced industrialized nations, there is a sense that technology by itself, by definition, is good, and anything we can do with technology, we should do. Right. And I think the ethicists are starting to um, maybe question that and, and ask us, is it true that anything that we can do, we should do? And maybe the answer is not always yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really fascinating because I'm actually pregnant myself and oh, I'm thinking about, I, I know we got a lot going on in my head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just newly pregnant, but you know, I think about ultrasounds a lot because it's mm. you know, something that I'm, um, you know, going to be asked if I won. And, and it is interesting because it's one of those things where it supposedly will, um, you know, tell you if your child has XYZ disorder or, um, a situation like that. But what's so interesting is, of course, they don't catch all diseases or genetic disorders, and they can sometimes have a false positive associated with them. And I've always been interested in kind of that, you know, the ethics of ultrasounds almost because it's like, well, what if you get this false positive, you tell a parent that their child has a you know, Down syndrome, let's say, and, and then they don't actually end up having it. And the the parent terminates the pregnancy. Like it's, it's just fascinating to think about all of that stuff, you know, or. Uh, yeah, you've raised really, really interesting questions. And there are some anthropologists who've actually studied that. Um, ultrasound and amniocentesis in particular mm -hmm. um, has, I think, some ethical 
problems, particularly because many of these diseases, um, including Downs and some other um, significant um, hereditary or um, um, inborn um, disabilities or situations, can only be diagnosed uh, in the uh, late fourth or early fifth month, even into, into the middle or late of the fifth month via amnio. And by then, um, many women would not feel comfortable terminating a pregnancy. Uh, there are far more risks medically and certainly emotionally. It's, it's a lot more um, catastrophic. And we do have another a diagnostic test, uh, CVS, chorionic villi sampling, um, that is available in the late, mid to late um, end of the second month, so within the third trimester. And that test uh, tends to be able uh, to diagnose many, if not um, most of the scenarios that amniocentesis could diagnose. And um, if a really uh, troubling, catastrophic um, situation is detected and the mother uh, would decide to terminate the preg pregnancy, usually she can do it within um, the end, toward the end of the, the first trimester when it's so much uh, safer and less emotionally uh, catastrophic. Um, but the ethical question you raised is really relevant there too. Why is it that the vast majority of women are not even told about this um, CVS sampling option? They're only told about ultrasound and amnio, um, which are done much later in the pregnancy and have much more problematic scenarios for for termination yeah it's the whole thing is is just fascinating and thinking about it culturally like you said earlier like sometimes we feel like well if we have the technology to do it we should do it and but it just gets so muddy the water gets so muddy because yeah. it's like well what if your child does have a disability you know and and i mean i know i actually used to work with children with disabilities as a speech mm. therapist and mm. and know that you know, especially like a down, a child with Down syndrome, they can be have so many wonderful attributes and and be so much fun and and mm -hmm. so loving mm -hmm. and also very challenging. And I don't want to you know minimize. Oh my gosh, the intense work of those mm -hmm. parents and the mm -hmm. challenges. But you know, it, it's just fascinating to think about how we kind of can play God in some ways yeah. with our medicine yeah. and absolutely. Ways. But, but also in other cultures where they don't have access to that kind of medical care, like how do they deal with situations like that and how do they think about them, right? Because you kind of started out by telling these, um, telling a story about how the women kind of, um, you know, because they have such a high infant mortality rate, they, they have these like traditional stories about how, you know, well, if the baby isn't pleased here or if they don't like this life, then they'll go back to the other one that they were at before. And it's kind of, it's so interesting to see how we all kind of frame everything. Yeah, for sure. So. And then if we think about places like China and India that have used um, these uh, pregnancy technologies specifically to detect the gender of the baby and do selective abortions only on female mm -hmm. um, fetuses because there were preferences um, for boys for particular reasons. You know, there are a lot of really troubling ethical oh, yeah. uses of these technologies in other settings as well. It's horrible. I don't know how you uh, keep a civilization going without any women in it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> figure that out, right? <laughs> be a little hard. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my last question for you is like, what do you think are perhaps the advantages or benefits of just learning about, you know, how this whole parenting thing is done around the world? What do you think that can help, you know, help parents with or yeah, I mean, you know, I always told my students, no matter what I was teaching, child child rearing practices or anything else, knowledge is power. Um, the more you know, the more informed the decisions you can make. And I would never um, proselytize or missionize and tell people um, this is the, the right way to raise your child um, <laughs> right. because uh, from family to family, we know that different child-rearing styles work better um, or worse. And from community to community, nation to nation, different child-rearing styles work, work, work better or worse. But where I think it's helpful to learn about different child-rearing styles, the kinds of 
variety that I've been just um, barely alluding to, because there's, there's a whole lot more than <laughs> what I've mentioned today, um, is that it can at least reassure us that there is no one right universal biologically mandated way. And so if whatever we're doing, um, whether our mother is telling us we should do this or the advice columnist is telling us or our father-in-law or the teacher or rabbi or priest or anybody else is telling us if it's not working, um, you don't have to feel absolutely obligated to follow it because there are other right ways to raise children. Um, that said, I think the other way in which knowledge becomes power for parents is um, becoming aware of the perhaps unconscious set of values behind any given child-rearing practice. So if we take sleeping, which we um, talked about earlier, um, in the U.S., I think one of the reasons there's been so much resistance um, to co-sleeping, aside from the fear of rolling over and, and um, smothering the child, which turns out to be only partly scientifically um, a risk, is that there's a notion that children should learn to sleep by themselves as part of a very early practice of becoming independent. Mm. And that push to early independence um, is powerful and it makes sense with a lot of other broad American values of independence. And in societies that routinely always co-sleep, the idea there is that you don't want a child to become independent um, and think that they have no real relationship to others or claim on others or vice versa. You want the child to feel that they're part of a community and feel um, mutually involved. And so if we can step back and realize the values behind our own child-rearing um, practices, then we can make informed decisions about, are these the values that I actually want to be um, training my child into? Um, and if not, what are some other opportunities for different child-rearing practices that could help me um, inculcate different values? Yeah, I think that was beautifully said. And, you know, that interdependence piece is something that, you know, I don't want to, like you said, we don't want to proselytize and say this is the right way. But I do think the the value of interdependence is so much more helpful <laughs> for everyone, especially when I go back to think about new moms, you know, and the community that that should be surrounding them. And, and right. even older moms, you know, and parents that have teenagers, they should still have community. Right. And and if it's if it sounds like a nice scenario to your listeners and they're wondering, but we don't live in a community. We live in, you know, Chicago and I don't know my neighbors down the hall in my apartment building. That's where I think an anthropological um, cheerleading session could help. <laughs> there, <laughs> totally. There, there are ways to try and make community. And these days, I have to say, um, ironically, the internet, I think, is an incredible resource. This one particular software program called Meetup is now oh, yeah. helping people make communities of all sorts. Um, yeah. a, a friend of mine was um, recently... Uh, divorced, feeling lonely, and joined, um, not even necessarily for a romantic partner, but just joined a meetup group of people who like to go on long hikes. Yeah. And now he, every weekend he goes on a long hike um, within a, you know, a circum, uh, circumference of maybe 100 miles. Um, and he's met all sorts of interesting people. I know somebody who's joined a meetup group for beer brewing. They want to learn how to make beer. And <laughs> certainly like my there are many, many meetup groups of new parents, new moms, also new dads. Yeah. Um, so I think the internet does give us, although it can be an alienating force if we sit in front of our computers um, all day and never see a human being, but if we actually use it to find fellow human beings who are in our physical um, community, it actually can um, maybe help combat that kind of alienation. Yeah. And I know there's there's other websites for groups too. And like what helped me was, um, you know, the hospital I gave birth at just had, you know, those new, new mom and baby groups, you know. Oh, that's of, awesome. And I would just go there and we'd all go out to lunch afterwards. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Great, because you meet moms that are doing things so different from each other, mm -hmm. which I think is really good to see that diversity, you know, oh, well, we co-sleep, well, you know, we sleep trained at three months, you know, it's just mm -hmm. it's nice to have friends that aren't 
all exactly like you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I always told my students, life gets boring if everybody's your clone. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, Alma, I have really enjoyed our discussion and I would love for you to just quickly tell my listeners how they can, you know, find out more about you and, and you can direct them towards your website or some of your books as well. Thanks. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed the conversation too. I, uh, my website is very easy to remember, almagottlieb.com. I do have a blog and I blog there um, occasionally, not every day, but on various subjects, um, child rearing and, and others. Um, uh, the latest book that I've um, put out that I think might interest your listeners is called A World of Babies, uh, Imagined Child Care Guides for Eight Societies. It came out in 2017. Uh, it has its own Facebook page, um, and that is um, www.facebook.com slash W-O-B book. And um, initially, we used that Facebook page to promote the book at our publishers urging um, but very soon we started branching out and it's now a place where um, about once a week or so we post uh, a new post about something to do with the world's children oh, cool. uh, and maybe half of the blog pieces there are about the US and about half are about um, uh, uh, children elsewhere. Initially, we were focusing on young infants because that was the focus of the book, but now we've really expanded to looking at um, middle children, uh, teenagers, and even young adults. Um, I really love for your listeners to um, like our Facebook page. We've been viewed by about three quarters of a million people around the world, which makes me really happy. So it's not just for a U.S. audience. So I, I sort of see that page as my um, virtual classroom. Um, it's a way that I, I can teach in little small nuggets, um, mini blog size bites, um, a, a little tidbit of knowledge about um, child rearing around the world. Oh, I love that. Okay, well, great. Well, I will include links to both of those in the show notes for the Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, so they can just click right on away. And thank you so much for your time, Alma. I have really enjoyed ch chatting with you and I just appreciate all your insights and um, I'm sure your my listeners will check out your book and enjoy it as well. Likewise, I really appreciated the conversation. Good luck to you. All right, everyone, that was Alma Gottlieb. As always, go check out the links in the show notes for all of the books and websites we referenced. And I hope to see you guys soon. <laughs> Again, not making any promises, but hopefully by October, I will have another episode out. All right, thanks everyone for listening. Take care. Bye.